Hey, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So if you would start turning there with me, I'd appreciate that. We, uh, we did all fit in this room. I got a little nervy there for a second, but we, we made it work. Uh, we will be back in the larger ballroom next week. Although uh, this is really fun for me and maybe like a handful of you in this room because this is very throwback for us as a church. So before we ever planted Salt City Church, we had our first ever public gathering, our vision gathering in this room. And there was like 30 people right here. And we were dreaming about and talking about this church. And so now standing on the stage and seeing this as an actual church is a really fun moment for me. God's been faithful to us. Uh, so we're in Ephesians. We're starting this new series. And guys, this is our bread and butter as a church. So we do these, these topical series every once in a while. But mostly what we do is we open up a book of the Bible and we teach through it and we try to just say what that book says. And we've been excited about this series in particular for a long time because this book is about you as a church. Now, every book in the Bible is about you and applies to you, but this uniquely is about you because Ephesians is primarily about the church, what the church of God is and what it is that we believe. So this was a letter written to the church at Ephesus. So if you're new to the Bible, that's typically how these books are named. This book was written by this guy named Paul, uh, and it's named Ephesians because it was written to this church in Ephesus. Paul was in prison in Rome as he wrote this letter, and this letter was particularly meaningful to him, more than likely, uh, partially because of his circumstances in Rome and I think he was longing for his friends. Some of his best relationships were in Ephesus. He spent a majority of his ministry in Ephesus and had some of his closest relationships there. Another reason why this letter is significant is because Ephesus was a major metropolis at the time. So it was a center of uh, cultural, financial, religious activity. So this would be like if there was a letter written to a church in New York City. That's the type of city that Ephesus was. Um, and the gospel had created this incredible movement in Ephesus that was transforming this major metropolis at the time. So in Acts 19, the story of Paul in Ephesus is told where there's this giant riot that happens where this group of people get together in a stadium and they chant for two hours because they're trying to kick Paul and the Christians out of their city. So this tiny little movement on this crucified savior was transforming all of the cultural and economic and religious powers of the day. And, and the primary reason was because of the message that they heard. And those initial believers heard this message that we get to read today, and they believed, and it started to transform all of the power structures of society. And Jesus is still doing that same thing through this message. And so it's a privilege to get to read that same message that did that in Ephesus. The book of Ephesians uh, pretty clearly breaks up into two categories. All right, so the first is chapters one through three, where uh, Paul is talking about the story, the gospel message about how Jesus Christ is the climax of everything that's ever happened in the world, that it's all about him and how he's saving and redeeming the world. And then chapters four through six is how that story should affect how we live our story and how we live it collectively as a church. And so we're in the first part of that that is all about that message. 
And so for the next several weeks, guys, we're just talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. And in our text today, there is not a command. It's just a description of how amazing God is and what his character is like. And so what do you do with that? How do you apply that message? The answer is you worship. And, and I think that's what Paul was doing even as he wrote this. Ephesians start, starts with this giant run-on sentence. It's like he's breathless with the goodness of Jesus Christ, so much so that he can't even punctuate it. There, there's times that, that I like do some uh, like prayer journaling, and most of the time it's like very normal. I'm just kind of writing things. I'm not that into it. But every once in a while, I, I, it like gets in my soul. And I, and I start thinking about how good God is and I look back at it and the words get more and more scribbly as I go because I like can't keep up with the amazingness of God that's happening in my brain. And so it just starts to slant and it gets a little crazy. I think that's what's happening for Paul here is he can't even slow down to punctuate it because he's so enamored with the goodness of Jesus Christ. He is saying that, that he's blessing God and he's commanding us to bless God as he writes this because God is so good. And so that's what we want to do this morning is we want to see the, the amazingness of Jesus Christ and we want to bless him. We want to worship him. Now, just before we get into that, I just wanted to acknowledge some of you in the room. So I had a conversation uh, with one of you in our church this week where you just shared with me that uh, you've been struggling with some depression and, and things of that nature. And it can be hard for you to come to church because it feels like everyone here is just happy. And it feels like you have to be happy to come to church. And that certainly isn't the case in some senses. We do not believe in the kind of Christian plastic happiness where you have to put on this face and act like everything is fine. We do not want to be a church like that. And I'm sorry if that's been your experience. But one thing we do believe in is these truths that we see in Scripture are beautiful, wonderful, and that they can transform your life. And I, I, I think I shared a couple weeks ago that it's been a harder stretch for me as well, that I've been battling with some depression over a period here. But as I've been meditating on this text this week, I feel like my heart is starting to thaw. And I'm starting to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus again. And that's what the Bible does. And so we do expect that to happen. And that is why we're here. Not to, to put on a face and pretend to be happy, but to look at the beauty of Jesus Christ and watch it transform our lives and to rejoice in him because he's good. And he always will be good. Whether we feel it or not, that's what's true of him. That's what he's like. And so that's what we want to do this morning. Look at verse 3. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. I feel wholly inadequate to attempt to communicate that truth. Uh, actually, I just want to pray. D give me a second here. Let's, let's pray. God, I let the reality of every spiritual blessing in Christ land in our souls by your spirit. Let us see that for how beautiful and good it is. That you have withheld nothing from us. We can't even figure that out or understand that we need your power to help us see how amazing that is and live in that. Amen. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. 
know, spiritual blessing, sometimes we think weird things about the word spiritual, and, and we think that means it's not real. The biblical uh, worldview on spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms is not that they're less real, but they're more real. It's, he's not qualifying it. He's zooming out and he's saying everything in the world that Jesus owns and everything that is eternal and given by his Holy Spirit and that is lasting in nature has been given to you in Christ. There's this old expression that used to be said in our network of churches that I think we need to bring back, it, that it's like we're standing under a waterfall of God's grace with a Dixie cup trying to catch it. And I think that's what this text is communicating, is that God is just dumping his grace and his goodness on us, and we don't even have the capacity to be able to grasp the reality of his goodness. Have you ever gone out to eat with someone who at the beginning made it clear that they were buying, right? And they're like, just get whatever you want. But then have you still not gotten whatever you want? <laughs> I've done that multiple times, right? Because you're not sure if they really mean it. Uh, and so you, you don't get whatever you want, and it somehow makes it even worse than if they wouldn't have said that, right? But have you ever had the experience where someone has said that to you, and you know that not only, I mean, they've got the money, right? Like, they're fine, but you know they mean it. Like, they genuinely want you to get whatever you want, and if they found out that you didn't, it would be disappointing for them, right? Okay, at that point, game on, all right? <laughs> You're getting apps, you're getting desserts, you're, you're getting everything because you know that they're delighting in giving you whatever you want. This is what God is doing here. It's like he's taking you up to look over all of his creation and he's saying, everything that exists in the heavenly realms, have whatever you want. Anything good in it, it's yours in me. Here's what that means. You lack nothing. Don't we live so much of our lives as if there's something more that we need? Or like your fears, your insecurities, your anxieties, your performance mentality, your striving, isn't that because you think that in your current life you don't have something and if you could just get that, then your life would be full and meaningful? This is what this is saying. There is nothing good in the world that you lack if you are in Christ. Because everything good in existence is in Christ. He is the substance and essence of everything good. And if you are found in him, you have everything good in him. That word every has been blowing my mind this week. But it's actually not the primary emphasis of the text. The primary emphasis is who the every is in. So look at this. Over and over again, he's clarifying the way that we have spiritual blessings is in Christ. Look at verse 1, apostleship in Jesus. Verse 2, grace and peace from Jesus. Verse 3, blessed in Christ. Verse 4, chosen in him. Verse 5, adopted through Christ. Verse 6, blessed in the beloved. The beloved is Jesus, okay? So every verse, sometimes multiple times at the beginning of Ephesians, he's clarifying that everything we have that's good is in Christ, that's the emphasis that he's saying, you can't miss this. Typically, writers try to avoid that much repetition. That in general is not considered good writing. Paul doesn't care about that. He wants to make sure you don't miss that everything good is found in him. He's the source and focal point of what's good. So there is nothing good that you lack in him. 
then he's going to spend the rest of this text unpacking those good things that we have in him. So let's do that. That's what we're going to do for the rest of the time. All right, so let's, let's look at this. What are the benefits, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ? First one I want to unpack is that we are saints. It's from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So saint is Paul's favorite description of Christians. He uses it 39 times in the New Testament, and he doesn't use the word Christian once. So this is the way that Paul referred to believers in Jesus. He called them saints. So the word means holy, and holy means to be, to be set apart. Now, when we think about something that's holy, we think about God. Or maybe you think about something that's religious. Maybe you feel like a, a building or a cathedral or something like that is holy, but it's always something outside of ourselves. But when God thinks about something that's holy, he thinks about you. There's that expression, well, I'm no saint. Yes, you are. You are. That's what God said about you, is you are a saint. That's what his perspective is on you. And he doesn't think less of you because he is so holy, so different than you. He doesn't think less of you than you think of you or somebody else thinks of you. He thinks more of you. Because he's holy, he's given you some of that holiness. He's set you apart for special use. So like at home, we've got a tablecloth that we only break out on special occasions, right? It's not like a Tuesday and we're using the tablecloth. It's you break it out on special occasions, you keep it clean. It's set aside for special use. It's holy. It's consecrated. That's what that word means. So what is the special designation that Jesus has set you aside for? Well, I think there's a, a connection here in chapter 1 to chapter 5 where he's talking about, again, how he's made us holy in Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 is talking about Christian marriage and the symbolism involved in Christian marriage. I want to read a section of that to you, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, okay, so, so he's saying so that, right? Jesus gave himself up for the church so that, he's going to give the reason, he might sanctify her. The word sanctify means holy, right? So saint, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So you see what he's saying here is Jesus gave up his life so that the church would be holy and without blemish. Why did he want the church to be holy and without blemish? Look back at verse 27. Uh, if you flip there, or I'll read it to you here. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Remember the context of this is marriage. What's he saying? He wants to present the church to himself in marriage. The reason why Jesus has made you a saint, made us saints as his bride, the church, is because he wants to marry us. He wants to stand before us and make vows 
that he will never leave us or forsake us. And typically when you make those vows on this earth, it means for life. With Christ, it means in life and death because there is eternal life. He's making promises to us for eternity that he wants to be committed to us and in relationship with us. But we were not worthy of that designation, so he set us aside as holy. He made us blameless so that he could marry us as a church, have that type of relationship as a church. So if you have ever been degraded, looked down upon, disrespected, misunderstood, here's what you say to those people. I'm a saint. You're a saint in Christ. Maybe those voices that are degrading and disrespecting you is your own voice. You are a saint. Jesus doesn't talk to you like that. If you are in him, he rejoices over you the way a good husband rejoices over his wife. You are of infinite worth because God gave the infinite life of his son so that he could have you. It was considered worth it to have you. That's your value in Christ. So you're a saint. Next, if you're in Christ, you are adopted. We are adopted. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So this is another analogy in scripture for salvation. So he uses the marriage analogy, but then he also uses the, the adoption, the, the child analogy. So it's already an, an analogy, okay? So let's just unpack sort of what that analogy means. So when someone is adopted, think about the implications of that. Think about where the initiative is. That parents or a parent decides on their own volition to love someone who is in difficult circumstances. They don't read their resume and figure out whether they earned it or whether they would kind of make their family better in that sense. They just want to love someone who needs love. And so they initiate that relationship of love. Think about the blessings and privileges of being a part of an adopted family. Right? You, you were orphaned and then you're brought into a family and now you have everything that that family has. <laughs> right? At least in a good adoption, there's no distinction made between the biological kids and the adopted kids. You're just in and, and you receive the, the inheritance, you receive the blessing, all of the, the, the security and peace of a family. You get in on that. Think about the relationship dynamics of an adoption is you went from a stranger to a child overnight. And you now have full access to that parent in ways that you never would have had before and in unique ways that no one else has access. Think about the identity. You get to take on the family name. <laughs> you, you get brought into all of the history and the context of that family. You didn't have that history in context before. Unconditional commitment. <laughs> that that family looks at you and says, hey, no matter how this goes, if this goes well, if this goes poorly, I'm, I'm with you. You're, you're my kid. I want to support you. I want to love you. God is saying all of those things in that analogy about us and what it's like to have relationship with him. And you don't lose that when you screw up. So I'm an Adams. That's my, that's my last name. And I'm really thankful for 
my family and in my extended family, that I have some good relationship with them. And that name means something. I, I think in particular, my grandpa, I just, he's one of the people I respect most in the world. And he's just set this pace that what it means to be an Adams is that you are a, a kind, generous, um, respectable person. Anybody that knows my, my grandpa loves him and, and respects him, right? And so whether it's been specifically said or whether that's just been picked up, I developed this understanding of like, look, I, I want to embody that. I'm an Adams. It means something to me. So the fact that I'm an Adams, that identity produces behavior in me. I, I want to be like that, right? Now, I also screw that up. I'm not like that all the time. And here's what doesn't happen. My grandpa doesn't come up to me and say, you lost the name, man, you're out. Like I, I wasn't generous one time or I wasn't kind one time. And so he just comes up, kind of scolds me and is like, that's it, you're done. That's not how family works, right? Maybe those are conversations of like, hey, that's not how we act, but it's for the purpose of restoring you, bringing you back in. You have the family name of God if you have trusted in Jesus. You are in Christ. And that identity comes first and that produces behavior out of that identity. And it's not like if you screw that up that Jesus is going to come and kind of remove that distinction of saint from you. No, you're in the family. And being in the family starts to help you act like the family. You don't act like the family to get into the family. It's the other way around. So we're adopted in Christ. So those blessings in some ways are founded on one of the first blessings that he mentions is that we are chosen. Look at verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So, these verses can be a source of confusion for some of us, right? So he said he chose us in him, that he predestined us before the foundation of the world. So that can be a source of confusion for some of us on how sanctification works. But it's not because this text is unclear. It's actually quite clear what this is saying. It's just because we don't like the implications of what that means for salvation. And so we have these kind of arguments about it and get confused about it. But I just want to look at what this text says because it's, it's amazing, right? So, so before we sort of interpret and unpack this, I just want to look at the words. What do these words mean? So he said in verse 4 that he chose us. You know what it means to choose someone or something, right? You pick it. You, you select it. The, the initiative is not on the, the person or the, the object being chosen. The initiative is on the one doing the choosing, right? So that's what the word chosen means. Now, when did this choosing happen? Well, he says it right there in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So, so God chose us before the foundation of the world. So before you were born... God chose you. So that removes any conversation about your merit or contributing to your salvation because you weren't alive yet. All right, predestined. Let's just look at what that means. Okay, so pre means before. Destined means destiny. So your destiny was determined 
in advance. All right? You, you have a predetermined destiny by God. Now, what is it that he's talking about that was predetermined? Well, in the context of this text, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about how you're adopted, how you, you become a saint, how you're blameless. So, so here's what this is saying. Here's how you were saved. Is God, before you were born, decided to have mercy on you? You were saved by God for God. Or the way that, that Jared Wilson puts it is this. We are saved from God, to God, by God, through God, for God. From God, to God, by God, through God, for God. The Godhead works in concert so that salvation will engulf you in God. So we can ask a lot of questions and get in the weeds about how that works, right? And that's, uh, that's understandable. Um, but the emphasis of this text is not on how this works. The emphasis is on how amazing it is. So what, what's the ground of that salvation? Verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Here's why you were saved. is because God wanted to save you. <laughs> He rejoiced in giving you the opportunity to rejoice. So that's the ground of your salvation, the will of God, the good-hearted will of God. Here's the goal of salvation, verse 5, for adoption. The reason why he saved you is because he wanted to have relationship with you. And the ultimate goal is, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That we would look at that unmerited free mercy and say, Jesus is amazing. That's incredible. That must have been the only way that God could have reached me and he chose to do it so that he could have relationship with us. Now we do weird stuff with this and say, okay, if that's true, then that must mean that we don't have any free will. And that makes us like robots or puppets. Okay, one, that's just not true from what the Bible says. The Bible clearly says that uh, our decisions matter and that we have a will and calls our will to follow and obey Jesus. And so it's just that those two things are held together. We don't understand them. That doesn't mean it's not true, right? We just can't understand the fullness of that mystery. Also the whole like kind of robot puppet thing. There's few robots or puppets that I know that are asking questions about their free will. So the fact that you're asking that question <laughs> means that you have a degree of will of determination, but the ultimate initiative here is placed on God himself. Now, if we don't like that idea, it's partially because the mystery for us is difficult. We want to understand sort of everything that's happening, but you're following God, an infinite being that we can't fully understand. Get used to mystery. <laughs> that, that's part of the deal, right? But I think part of the other reason why we don't like this is uh, because we want to be chosen for our merits, okay? So think about being chosen on a dodgeball team, all right? You get, also, I, I know there's like a sound going on. All right, let's acknowledge it. Everybody's kind of looking. I was kind of thinking about it too. All right, bring it back, okay? All right, we're talking about dodgeball. So uh, you, get, you get chosen for a dodgeball team, right? Why do you get chosen for a dodgeball team? Because you have a good arm. And that's the type of choosing that we want to be true is because there's something that we offer or contribute to our salvation. 
But think about being chosen as a family, or, or excuse me, think about um, parents choosing to have a child. Okay, the, the child is not a part of that choosing. It's parents that decided to have a kid so that they could love that kid. They wanted to incorporate that kid into their life. And that child is entirely dependent on the parents for their existence. That's the type of choosing that this is talking about, where we are entirely dependent on God for our life and existence, and we don't contribute to that reality. And that's challenging for us, but it's also beautiful. Here's what you should do with that information, is you should praise his glorious grace. That is the application of this text. That's what it's saying. God is amazing and decided to pull you into his family. Celebrate that reality that you have unearned, unmerited mercy from Jesus Christ. Because the fact that you didn't contribute to your salvation also means that you can't mess up your salvation. This is one of my favorite doctrines in all of the Bible. Because one of my most significant doubts about Christianity is not the existence of God, It's my ability to be a Christian. I so often look at what the Bible says Christianity is and I look at my life and I see way too much of a gap. And I don't know what to do with that. And God has promised me that he will change me, that he'll conform me into the image of his son. And that's hard for me to see sometimes. And so sometimes I doubt my salvation because I I don't understand how I'm changing or how how I'm different. But here's what I've come to appreciate and love about this, is that if God initiated salvation, if it was unmerited, unearned favor, that means it is not dependent on me and I can't mess it up. I can't lose it because it's not about my faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness to me. And God is always faithful. It's part of the definition of who he is. He will not let you go if you are in Christ. You can trust him. And so if he could look ahead and see your salvation, it also means that he could look ahead and see what it would take to save you. And what it would take to save you is God becoming human to die on a cross. And he looked at that and he looked at how the world, before the foundation of the world, he looked forward and saw how all of us would mess up his good and beautiful world, how we would break his heart with our sin and our wickedness over and over and over again. And he said, that is worth it because I want relationship with them. I want to love them. I want to save them. It's worth my own life. And if it was worth his life, it means that he can hold on to you, even with flaws and failures. Because he has chosen you one more blessing, you have peace with God. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's an analogy in the Bible about what what sin is. And it it uses this analogy. um, It's almost like we've declared war on God, that we're fighting with him. We're enemies of him. And so instead of being uh, friends of God by nature, we, we... fight with him. We declare war on him. Now, I want you to think about how does a peace treaty happen between two sides that are at war or that are fighting with one another? So, for example, after World War I, there was a peace treaty signed, and the terms were dictated by 
the allies because they had won the war, they had the power, and so they dictated the terms for their benefit. That's how it works. That's how peace treaties go, right? So here were some of the terms is that Germany would have to sign a guilt clause stating that the war was their fault. So they would have to acknowledge their guilt. Next, they would have to pay back uh, all of the damage that was done by the war. So in, in that day's dollars, $33 billion in reparations. Uh, the German army was essentially uh, dismantled, uh, and the population and, and territory of Germany was reduced, right? So this is how the peace treaty worked, is you had to recognize your guilt, you had to pay back the offended party what you owed them, uh, which was an impossibly large sum that would, in theory, could kind of ruin the, the country, right? So that's how peace treaties work. Jesus used the same peace philosophy that the Allies did, only in reverse. So instead of setting up terms of an agreement that benefit him, he set up terms of the agreement that benefit us, even though we had started the war. <laughs> that, that even though we were guilty, he died like a criminal. He died and paid the punishment for our guilt. Even though we owed him an unpayable sum of debt for the decimation of this world in our sin, God paid our debt with the infinitely valuable life of his son. He gave something of infinite worth to pay back an infinite debt. And he initiated, signed, and sealed a peace treaty that took an unimaginable amount from him so that we could receive an unimaginable amount from him. And so now we can be at peace with God. So there's so many things that other people will tell you about who you are. There's, there's so many things that you will tell you about who you are, but let me tell you who you are straight from Ephesians 1. You are a faithful saint. You are given grace and peace by God. You are blessed with everything good. You are chosen. You are predestined. You are holy. You are blameless. You are loved. You are adopted. You are a son or daughter. In other words, you are in Christ and you receive all of the goodness that he earned. He gives it to you. Let's pray. That God is a, a stunningly good truth. Um, one that we don't even understand fully. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us that, that you would, at that much cost, come and get us. But thank you for doing it. It's the only way we can know you. And God, I don't ever want to get bored of that truth and how good you are. I, I don't want to ever lose the, the wonder of your gospel and how you saved us. And I don't want us as a church to try to move on or get bored with that truth. And so, Holy Spirit, would you wake up that the goodness of salvation in us. And for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, would they repent and believe? Would they come to know you? Would you save them? 
Would you help all of us to experience the goodness of salvation and to be changed by it? And so again, God, that, the application of this is, is worship. There's The thing we got to go do is just praise you and enjoy you. And so let us start that now. As we sing, would you be honored with our minds and our hearts and what we think about you? Would you help us not to get hung up on our, our misunderstandings or our confusion and just sit back and wonder at your goodness. Thank you for saving us, Jesus. You're good. Amen.